Well, good morning, Elevation. My name is Brandon, and for those of you who might be joining in for the first time, I'm the lead pastor here in Waterloo. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our January series on the very good gospel. And we're going to be talking about how the gospel is good news for liberals and conservatives. Now, this past week, Joe Biden's inauguration in the U.S. capped off a year of increasing political divisiveness that was a continuation of a troubling trend toward polarization. I'm going to put an image up on the screen right now, and what you're going to see is two separate graphs, and I'm going to explain what they are. The graph on the left is from 1994. And the two peaks that you see, the one on the left is blue, that represents people who would vote Democrat, and the one on the right, and one in red, are people who would vote Republican, so liberals and conservatives, respectively. In 1994, as you can see, the, hill, the mountains, the peaks there, they're actually quite close to one another, which uh, lets us know that the people who are in the median of each of those parties were quite close together. Um, when we take a look at the next graph, however, this is from 2017, what we find out is that more people are identifying more strongly towards the far left side of the spectrum and to a degree more strongly with the far right side of the spectrum as well. And as you can see by the lines in the middle of that graph, the people who are in the median of each of those categories find themselves drifting further and further apart. Now, you can only imagine with the events that have taken place in the last few years, how those polls might actually be even more densely populated. Uh, as I read in an article recently from a voter in the Georgia election runoffs, I wouldn't vote for a Democrat unless they had let Jesus on the ticket. And so there is a perspective out there that this is who I am and I'm actually digging in the trenches that's even stronger in my opinions here. Now, this is about the US, of course, and we see a lot about American politics in the media, but this is also applicable to Cana in a Canadian context. So here's a little bit of a statistic to go along. Between the years 2002 and 2017, the number of Canadians identifying as neither liberal or conservative has decreased from 46% to 17%. So that means that in 2002, 46% of people were like, you know what, I don't really identify with one party or the other. But today, only 17% don't identify with one of those main political parties. Now, I have to say a couple of things. First of all, liberal and conservative are not the only political options out there. I want to identify that. Um, they are sometimes the most dominant, and thinking about uh, the world in a liberal view and a conservative view are two general ways that people tend to approach things. But there are all kinds of other ways that people are divided when it comes to politics. Divisions on matters of foreign policy, racial justice, abortion, healthcare, taxation, criminal justice, the environment, and more recently, how we should respond in the midst of a pandemic. But if people who claim to be followers of Jesus fall on either side of any of these issues, and they find themselves in basically any political party that's out there, how on earth do we sort things out? Can we sort things out? I was reading some quotes from Joe Biden's speech at his inauguration, and one of the lines that stood out to me goes like this. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. Now listen, speeches are what they are. Words are only words until they're followed by actions. I'm aware of that. But I believe that what Biden said there is objectively true. Politics do not have to be a raging fire. Every disagreement does not have to break out in war. Generally speaking, when it comes to political differences, there are not 
good guys and bad guys. And when we categorize people like that, we run ourselves into trouble. As a friend of mine mentioned in an email recently, in that case, everyone loses. And that's not what we want, is it? Now, interesting that here we are in church talking about politics because there is a part of charity law that says that churches or religious organizations are not to allow partisan activity. So there won't be any of that this morning. We're not speaking in favor or bias towards one persuasion or the other, but we are going to talk about it because faith and politics somehow refuse to be separated no matter how hard we might try. And tragically, it somehow seems that faith often makes the whole matter worse. And why is that the case? Scott McKnight writes this, the church is a profoundly political way of life, but it is a new kind of politics. We must be political, but we must do it by being profoundly church. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, we're gonna dive into that a little bit this morning. Back in 2018, when as a church community, we walked through some difficult conversations around LGBTQ inclusion, I came across a book written by an author named Ken Wilson. He talked about that theme specifically, but he talked in more broad context as well. And at one point he said that we're all invited to trade the pleasure of sharing faith in a like-minded group for the challenge of sharing faith in a diverse one. That really resonated with me when I read it. And I think that the best thing for us as individuals, followers of Jesus, and as a community that represents him collectively out in our city and the world, is to make this trade and commit to unity in Christ, to make the trade that instead of desiring to only surround ourselves with people like us, that we intentionally want to be around people who see the world and move in the world differently than we do. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, the author of the book, The Very Good Gospel, we need to envision a new way of being together. Now, the idea of Jesus being a presidential candidate is borderline comical. When you think about the way that Jesus interacted with the political folks of his day, um, for example, the religious elite of his day would have been very politically active, and he referred to them on different occasions as whitewashed tombs, snakes and sons of hell. So just imagine a political candidate kind of referring to their opponent that way. When questioned by the governor of the day, Jesus refused to answer to the charges against him. Again, I'm kind of picturing him in a debate setting and someone is making accusations and Jesus is just standing there quiet. Like, I don't know if that's going to work. Jesus in the end was so despised by his political opponents that they ended up condemning him to death. So maybe the idea of Jesus running for office isn't what we should be focused on. Now, just before the encounter that we heard about in this morning's reading, Jesus had been teaching about a wedding banquet that a number of guests somehow, although invited, refused to attend. We read in Matthew 22, verse 10, So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, the implication was clear here. God will welcome some of these bad people before you, talking to those religious and political elites of, his, of the day. So obviously Jesus was not getting on their right side. And this is where this morning's reading begins, picks up in Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. About 15 years ago, I made a mistake. I made a mistake because we were in the middle of a, our student church at the university was in the middle of a conflict with a student union. It was about rental. They yanked our booking at the last minute and all of a sudden uh, all these hundreds of students showed up and it was a big to do. The local news showed up at the campus and I did this interview on the ring road at UW and I thought that I like 
articulated myself really well. And I was like, oh, this is going to go really well. And this will get us some positive press. And I was absolutely horrified when I watched the news later that night, which basically made me look like a total scoundrel. They just took a couple of little sound bites out of me saying things that completely out of context made me sound like I was doing something really wrong. It was awful. Now, I should have been more aware. Jesus was a little more perceptive of his audience than I was then. And well, he was a lot less naive as well. What comes next in this story is a classic example of politics at its best, buttering someone up in hopes of getting something out of them. Let's continue to read. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, first off, notice what the Pharisees did. They didn't show up themselves. They sent their disciples, their followers, and they also brought in another group, the Herodians. Now, historians are a little divided on exactly who they were, but they were clearly some kind of religious group that were tied to Herod, the, the king of the day, and they wanted and they were affiliated with him. So the Pharisees send their followers as well as this other group of Herodians. So we've got two different groups, people who are loyal to the Pharisees and people who are loyal to Herod. How authentic would you expect these people to be, knowing that they had already pledged their allegiance to their respective political parties? So they come into the conversation with that baggage. The interesting thing about this kind of buttering up that they do is, since when did the Pharisees think that Jesus taught the way of God in accordance with the truth? I mean, the Gospels are absolutely filled with stories of this same group of people questioning his authority, asking where he came from, questioning his teachings, challenging his orthodoxy. And so all of a sudden they send their followers and they're saying, oh, Jesus, we know that you always teach according to the truth. And they continue on. Tell us then, what is your opinion? This is what they really wanted to get to. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, I came across this great definition of politics in the Urban Dictionary. The art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. All right, so it's a little harsh, but humorous at the same time. Jesus' questioners were appealing to the sympathies of the tax-paying crowds who would have gathered around Jesus, and they wanted to force Jesus into a corner. You see, how is he going to respond to this? If he says, you should continue paying taxes, well, then the people are going to be like, oh, well, what good are you? Why should we follow you? Uh, if he says you shouldn't pay taxes, well, then the Herodians, who are loyal to the government, they're going to step in and say, well, now you're causing trouble, and there would be trouble for Jesus there. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Sometimes I wish I had the boldness of Jesus just to call people out just to call them out on their motives. But there's probably good reason that I don't have that boldness. Thomas Merton reminds us that the one truth that would help us to begin to solve our ethical and political problems is that we are all more or less wrong, that we are all at fault, all limited and obstructed by our mixed motives, our self-deception, our greed, our self-righteousness, and our tendency to hypocrisy. Jesus was none of those things. He could be bold. He could respond this way. Then he said to them, he asked them to, sit, to show him a coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And they answer, well, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. 
Now, on one level, I think part of what Jesus is saying is don't come to me with your dishonest inquiry, with your divisive intentions. I'm not interested in these political games that you're playing here. I've got more important work to do. I think that's what he's saying on one level. But commentators believe that there was something more significant that Jesus was saying, which would explain why the people were amazed at what he said and walked away with nothing else to say. You see, a coin bears the image of Caesar. And Jesus was saying, sure, Caesar's image is on the coin, then give the coin back to Caesar. But what Jesus was saying when he referred to this idea of give it to God, what is God's? Well, where is God's image in our world? Well, God's image is on each and every one of us. And so in essence, Jesus was saying, give whatever has God's image on it back to God. In other words, every man and woman created in the image of God should have their lives devoted to God. To quote Dallas Willard, the good news of the kingdom is an all-encompassing invitation to live life under the rule of God. Now, Jesus invites his followers, as well as his opponents, to strike a balance that includes living under the governing authority of his day and part of a broader commitment to live under the rule of God. Now, you can choose one or the other. You know, you can choose and say, well, I don't believe in God. I'm just going to follow the government. Or you can say, well, I only believe in God. I don't believe in the government. Uh, you can believe in neither and just be an anarchist, uh, or you can choose both. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can actually be a responsible citizen and obedient to the government and honor God with your entire life. N.T. Wright did this interview once that I watched, and he was talking about how politicians don't like when the church interferes in what they consider their business. He imagines the conversation going like this. You can't say that. You're the church. You go and teach people how to pray and get to heaven. Don't tell us how to run the world. The answer, he suggests, is, well, actually, we believe in the God who runs the world, and through Jesus, he is addressing the world with news of the genuine kingdom of which your petty little kingdoms are only parodies. Again, there it is, that boldness. But isn't this precisely what Jesus seems to be saying? The English preacher John Wesley used to advise ministers, keep out of politics. You have nothing to do but save souls. Now, at first glance, that's like, that doesn't seem like the way that we would want to live our lives. But don't misunderstand. This wasn't some kind of religious escapism. Wesley believed that social holiness, which is maybe another way of talking about the shalom that we've been exploring this series, was the result not of the government or church coercion, but of personal holiness brought about by individual spiritual vitality. So rather than waiting for political parties to change the world for good, we start right at home. N.T. Wright continues, there is ultimately no justification for a private piety that doesn't work out an actual mission, just as there is ultimately no justification for people who use their activism in the social, cultural, or political sphere as a screen to prevent them from facing the same challenges within their own lives. Now, that's interesting in both directions. The second part of Wright's quote here actually reminded me of something that I felt four and a bit years ago when Trump was elected. And there was obviously a, a lot of people who were very upset about it and really concerned and were expressing all these opinions. And I remember having this thought, like, we have to be careful that we don't point the finger so much at someone else that we're not willing to look at our own lives, that we're going to blame someone else for, for the problems in the world around us rather than taking responsibility ourselves. As with most things, balance is key. We need to both be active in the world and 
doing the work that needs to be done, but we also be need to taking care of our own lives and being reflective on, on how can we become more holy ourselves. Rick Schaefer is a pastor in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's part of the Jesus Collective Network that Elevation is affiliated with, and so I've had an opportunity to interact with him from time to time. Um, a couple weeks ago, during, on response to the Capitol riots, a number of our American kind of partners uh, submitted just a, a brief thoughts and reflections on what it was like to be living in the U.S. during such a divisive time politically. And I want to read what he shared. The Apostle Peter tells us that Christians are sojourners and exiles. We live in this world as representatives of another. Times like these can be special moments when the beauty of God's kingdom may be seen more vividly against such an ugly backdrop. Now is the time for Jesus' followers to act as peacemakers, to show love to enemies, and to be servants of all. It is in these times that we distinguish ourselves and bring glory to the Father we worship. In that same letter, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, Peter encourages the church, above all, love each other deeply. The Greek word used for deeply here is the same word that's used for a horse at full gallop. So if you can kind of picture all of that energy, it means stretched out and sometimes it's translated fervently. That is the kind of love that we are called to have for one another, regardless of whether we agree with one another politically. And so the gospel is good news for liberals and conservatives because it reminds us that regardless of our leanings, we are all fellow citizens of a higher kingdom first. Ken Wilson, again, writing and reflecting the goal and the heart of his own church community, says, we ruthlessly practice the discipline of seeing those with whom we disagree in the best possible light, trusting God to judge their motives, intentions, and heart better than we. I just want to pause for a second and encourage you to ask yourself, could you do that honestly? Could you practice the discipline of seeing those who you disagree with in the best possible light, trusting God to judge the motives of their heart? That's a really deep question for us to ask ourselves. Ken Wilson continues, and he talks about uh, the third way. Our Jesus Collective community, again, would use a lot of language of this third way, which is essentially say we don't want to swing to one side or another and polarize, but we want to try to find a way where we can move, where we have this unity in diversity. And Wilson describes what this looks like in the area of politics. He writes that a third way challenges conservatives and liberals in different ways. The conservatives are challenged to accept those who don't share their moral objections, not to separate those from those who are liberal on this basis, but to embrace them instead. The third way challenges liberals to refrain from holding conservatives in contempt or mild condescension, as the case may be. Challenges in both directions. What do you think? Are you willing to stop casting political others as being unfaithful? or evil? Are you willing to check the attitudes of your heart as you work for God's shalom, along with people who are very different than you? At the end of the day, I think the church's role in all of this is to helping form and nurture a community of people who will go out and represent Jesus in all of our various spheres of life. Now, the politicians and political systems of Jesus' day, well, they chewed him out and spat him out on a hill outside of Jerusalem. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus' deference to his Father's will was the ultimate political act. He was giving to God what was God's. 
The perennial question for us is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to give to God what is God's? Peter Block writes that acting on what matters is ultimately a political stance, one whereby we declare we are accountable for the world around us and are willing to pursue what we define as important. Politics is about action, but our definition of what is important should never come from flawed human leaders, but from the one who gave his life for us and who invites us to take up our own cross and follow him. We're going to end our time this morning with a song called You Hold It All Together. In a world that is so divisive and falling apart in so many different ways, we're reminded that God holds all of this together. But before we sing that song together to close our service, I'll remind you uh, and invite you to join in on our neighbor's calls on the other side of the song. Uh, if you haven't participated in a post-service neighbor's discussion group before, we'd invite you to do that. If you can't make it out after the service, we'd encourage you to join us on Tuesday night at 7.30 where we'll have another time set aside to continue this conversation. But before we head to that song, I'd like to read a reflection from another one of our Jesus Collective partners. Her name's Angela, and she's a pastor in California, so we'll close with her words this morning. Putting Jesus at the center in the chaos, disorientation, and heartbreak of this polarizing moment means I never have to suffer disillusionment in my leader when moments of crisis arise. It means I don't have to wonder if I'm going to be okay at the end of this, or even if conditions continue to decline around me. It means I long for Jesus' kingdom to come a bit more desperation than I had last week. It means I carry immense gratitude for no squandered hope poured into a political party and instead am confirmed in my hope lying with Jesus' third way. It means I'm thirstier with every passing year to understand the way of Jesus. It means I renew my belief in the futility of violence as an answer and find myself redrawn to love as the solution. It means I wrestle anew with a challenge to learn to love those who are causing harm. It means I'm drawn into prayer on behalf of my world with more intensity today. It means I double back down on my call to be a light. It means I press into divinely inspired self-care so I have margin to pick my cross back up today and love again.